1: This is season nine. Woo-hoo. We're starting off season nine. Episode one. Episode one. worth celebrating because we have a new reason to celebrate, right?
0: We do. We do. We have every reason to celebrate. Looking forward to this season and uh, all of the great guests that we will have on Equipping You podcast. Yeah. So we're coming to you today from Columbus, Ohio, former home. Did you know this, Alan?
1: Probably not. Former home of the National Football League. I did not know that. I know the Hall of Fame is in what? Akron, correct? Canton, Ohio. Canton. sorry. Got my Northeast Ohio cities mixed up. So uh, the National Football League was headquartered in Columbus
0: from 1927 to 1939 or until 1932, depending on which website you read. Hmm. And we also had... An NFL team here called the Columbus Panhandles or the
1: Columbus Tigers, depending on which website. You think a team in the Panhandles would be in Oklahoma, not in Ohio, which resembles nothing of a panhandle. No clue, man. I don't have a clue on that either. No clue at all. So I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, Director of Development in the Eastern PA District of the Alliance. And... Joining us as well is Isaac
0: Charles, our producer, and Andy Carr, who is our videographer. For the very first time, I know, can right? you believe I it? Know. We're on camera, we're on TV, man. We're
1: famous. <laughs> it's just a shame because it's their face for radio, but yet yeah. now we're on video too. Yeah, had to happen sooner or yeah. later, I
0: suppose. I suppose, but here we are. Here we are because we're no place else. That's right. And uh, today, we're not going to talk about the National Football League, but we are going to talk with the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, Walter Kim, who is a great leader and a great voice for the evangelical movement across uh, the U.S. And really looking forward to this conversation. How about you, Alan? Oh,
1: yes. Can't wait for it. Uh, I've never had a chance to meet him personally, but certainly have read uh, and watch some responses that he's made in certain critical situations or uh, in America. And uh, I'm thankful for that. So it's going to be great to interact with him today. So grab yourself a gym cream soda. That's G E M, gym
0: cream soda, okay. bottled in Wellston, Ohio, just about an hour and a half south of here. Wow. So grab yourself a gym cream soda. Sit back, relax. Here we go. And we're pleased to welcome Walter Kim, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, to Equipping You podcast. Walter, thanks for taking the time to join us today.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: So, uh, we like to allow our Listeners to get to know our guests a little bit. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about your spiritual journey, how how you came to faith in Christ, how you how you heard God's call for uh, ministry.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Terry. Um well, I did not grow up in a particularly Christian household. It was a church-going household. Um But my journey to faith as a a child of uh, immigrant and refugee parents uh, included a lot of twists and turns. Um, And a lot of those twists and turns, there were juncture points in which people of faith had met our family. There were the uh, Christians in South Korea who were uh, doing refugee resettlement work. Uh, There was the Lutheran pastor who helped my parents move to America. There was an Irish Catholic family in whose basement uh, I lived in, in the Bronx of New York, and their kids taught me how to get to the park and ride my big wheel. (laughs) And and there was this um, evangelical pastor who uh, befriended me in middle school and took me to watch Star Wars. And after Star Wars, in the parking lot, shared the four spiritual laws with me and asked if Obi-Wan Kenobi, when he gave... His life, so that Luke and the others could escape, reminded me of someone. Uh, I, I dutifully said, "Yeah, <laughs> oh, <wow>. Jesus." <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> and and that's when I, I became a Christian. Um, well, I, you know, was growing in my faith through the high school years, and uh, began to sense. Uh, I was in a medical program, kind of combined undergrad med school program, and it was during my first year in the program where. Um, I had the privilege of seeing several of my hallmates and friends become Christians and to be a part of their spiritual journey. And that began to convince me that perhaps the Lord was calling me uh, into ministry of some sort. Um, and, you know, being a doctor is an honorable profession, God can use that, but there was an increasing sense that God was calling me uh, into some sort of vocational Christian work. Uh, and so during those years, uh, that vision, that's growing sense of call, led to uh, a redirection into, into ministry.
1: Yeah. Mm, great. That's good. I appreciate that. Uh, over the years, I'm sure your path has developed in different ways, but there had to be people that influenced you along that way. So who are two or three leaders who have been influential in your life and ministry? In addition to that, pastor who introduced you to Jesus through Star Wars. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Well, I mentioned that my college years were the years in which um, there was a redirection of my life. And it was my campus uh, director with crew um, at that time, Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, Dave Sylvester, who was profoundly influential in my life, not only teaching me about Christ, but walking me through big decisions about, you know, major issues in life and being an older figure in my life that was, would just love me, love me really, really well, listened, um, drew me out. Uh, and, and that, uh, I, I would say more than anything else gave me a sense, uh, of the incarnation of Christ that, you know, the ministry is not just something you, uh, could read about in a book or abstract lessons. Um, it's not even a profound experience though. We hope those encounters with the spirit happens, but it's kind of the day in and day out lived Embodied reality of a person's presence, um, and and Dave was like that for me. Mm. Um, the second person was my Old Testament professor at um, Regent College. I distinctly remember taking one of his finals. It was a take-home final, and uh, Bruce Walkie. And I was sitting in the library taking his final, and the way that he crafted his questions, uh, and the way that he taught his material. I literally, while taking the final, sitting in the cubicle in the library, started crying. Wow. Uh, because there was this overwhelming sense of God having revealed himself in the scriptures. And then I thought, God, I'm not going to, gosh, I'm, I'm not going to finish this final if I can't get my act together. You know, it's got a timed honor system. <laughs> like I, I pulled myself together. But to have the scriptures, opened up particularly the old testament that's often for christians like well you know how can i relate to this stuff right. um that was so immensely important yeah. and it was not just intellectual it was worshipful it was, it was the whole package mm. Mm.
1: wow that is beautiful it man. is beautiful it star is beautiful. wars and a and a and a final for a class that is two yeah. unique experiences it for, is. God, for sure <laughs> it is So, I've cried in the middle of tests, but it was for other reasons.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Walter, wondering how you got involved in the National Association of Evangelicals and how you eventually became the leader
2: of uh, NAE. The NAE was founded in 1942, and one of the instrumental founders, as well as his first president, was Harold John Ockengay who had been the senior pastor of Park Street Church. And that was the church that my wife and I started attending uh, when I was in doing some Old Testament studies in, in grad grad work uh, in Boston uh, and eventually came on staff uh, at, at the church, Park Street Church, as I was finishing oh, wow. up my uh, PhD. And in that time, I began to, of course, learn the history of Park Street. And it's kind of a third-way approach of... Seeking a gospel both in word and in deed. It was the church that uh, William Lloyd Garrison gave his first abolitionist speech uh, in Mm the mid 1800s. It was deeply engaged in the founding of Fuller and Gordon Conwell and a few other seminaries and other institutions. And one of the things that it helped do was found the National Association of Evangelicals as, as a navigating a third way, kind of between the isolationist and sometimes angry impulses of fundamentalism Mm -hmm. and the theological liberalism that was taking hold uh, in many uh, areas of our country. Um, What would it look like to have a historic orthodox evangelical faith that was nonetheless also simultaneously engaged in kind of the big cultural issues of the day rather than retreating from them, but engaged in in a way that was different. of course, it wasn't perfect, but it was um, it was for me an introduction to a way of thinking about and living out my faith, both in the personal and a public sphere. Um, and so, its historic relationship uh, with the NAE—that is, between Park Street and the NAE—led to an opportunity to come on the board of the NAE, and that in turn led to a, an opportunity to um, become uh, uh, president in twenty twenty. Hmm.
1: My family uh, is a big fan of the city of Boston visit there quite frequently. And I've stood outside Park Street and read the history of NAE and some other things on there. And, and it's, uh, it's neat to recall that to have that right on a main street, a Tremont street, I believe that is right. right. uh, That is on. uh, And that's just a good testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus in that. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, So as you look back through the history of NAE, why did he found it in the first place? You kind of touched on that a little bit in your answer. But then and what is its mission today
2: yeah you know there was a desire at that time I and mean, the world in many ways you know there's there's a repeat of history the world had gone through uh, a pandemic at the beginning of the 1900s global pandemic yeah. you know followed by a great depression uh, all throughout the world followed by uh world war ii And within this, kind of the tensions between theological fundamentalism and liberalism and the kind of cultural battles that took place. I mean, a lot of the challenges that we feel that we are facing today, you know, compressed perhaps in a few years of the pandemic. But nonetheless, those tensions existed. And the response was, can we find a movement of the spirit that would cross some denominational boundaries? such as the blends that were really existing between Pentecostals and Presbyterians. I'll just use that as an example. What would it look like to cross some theological boundaries knowing that there was a theological core we shared in the good news of Jesus Christ, a high view of scripture, uh, a desire to have a gospel that was embodied in word and also in deed. And this kind of third way that would fulfill the unity of Jesus um, that he prayed for in John chapter 17, you know, that we would be one to testify that we're disciples uh, and to the the power of the gospel that um, was still on mission with presenting Christ to to America uh, in, in some fresh ways. I would say that continues to persist. Uh, you know, there are 40 different denominations. There are scores of Christian ministries and institutions, nonprofits that are a part of the NAE network membership, uh, as well as individuals and individual churches. Um, and tying it all together, you know, connecting, representing good news people, the evangelicals, is this sense for um, a comprehensive gospel, a gospel that encompasses not just personal transformation, but public engagement. But in a way that recognizes the complexity of our time. How do we navigate this complexity with with a sense of biblical clarity, with a sense of charity as well that Christ would call us to and that Christ prayed for in John 17? And so, that that core mission of connecting and representing evangelicals is all the more, I would say, compelling and important uh, as it was in its founding in our current moment, because this this really is a complex time, mm-hmm. and we need to navigate away uh, between the kind of angry culture war approach and polarization that exists and the kind of capitulation to culture on the other hand. Um, so, how do you not just wage warfare, and how do you not assimilate, but how do you navigate this incarnational uh, approach that scripture speaks so so consistently about?
0: Yeah. So, uh, the term evangelical is... is- fallen on hard times a bit in our generation and culture, and often perhaps been equated more to, to uh, political purposes and spiritual purposes. So from, from your perspective, Walter, should we give up on the term or reclaim the true meaning of the term?
2: Yeah. Well, it's on my business card. I'd like to reclaim it.
1: Sounds know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of rhetorical <laughs> there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was struck by that as I was entering into the position, uh, in 2019, at the end of the, the 2019, I knew that I would be entering into the position in 2020. Um, and one of the opportunities that I had before I had formally started was to, uh, represent the U S at the world evangelical Alliance, uh, general assembly, which was being held in Jakarta, Indonesia in uh, November of 2019. And there were about 800 delegates from uh, 90 different countries. And um, it was beautiful. I mean, I just sensed such a compelling picture of God's spirit that tied together these evangelicals, these good news people throughout the world. There was a particular panel discussion in one of the plenary sessions about evangelicalism in America and the U.S. in particular. Uh, and there were representatives on the panel from you know Asia and Europe and uh, Africa and and uh, Latin America. Uh, no no American. They wanted to have a, a a very candid discussion. And I expected a litany of complaints about American evangelicalism, uh, North American evangelicalism and U.S evangelicalism in particular. And there were some critiques that were levied, but more than anything else, There was an actual plea from our brothers and sisters throughout the world, a plea that the U.S. evangelical movement would um, kind of work itself out Mm. and re-engage with the global community because they needed us as partners. They needed Mm. us to be involved in this movement. They wanted us to be involved in this movement. And I walked away from that thinking this very question, you know, do we jettison this term? No. Why in the world would I want to disassociate myself from my brothers and sisters throughout the world who are Mm -hmm. literally asking us to still recover and rejuvenate what it means to be an evangelical? I remember thinking, coming back to America, it is so American for us to jettison something when it's not convenient for us anymore. Yeah, so true. Wow. And I thought, you know, maybe there will come a day where we have to jettison to term because our missional context requires us to not present any obstacle to the good news of Jesus. Maybe such a day will come. But before that day comes, I think we have a responsibility to our global brothers and sisters uh, to be in this with them, because they are often leading, not just in times of inconvenience, but in places of Deep persecution, and yet they're yep. holding on to this term. Yep,
1: mm. yep. That's very well, we're well with you, man. We're yes, with you absolutely. I appreciate that. Uh, so, COVID uh, and the issues surrounding it sent shockwaves. The evangelical church in the United States, uh, certainly around the world, still feeling it. So, what did it reveal uh, about the evangelical church, and what kind of course corrections do you sense we should be working on as we go forward?
2: Yeah, you know, books are going to be written about this for decades to come, uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what just happened, uh, not oh. only in our country but throughout the world. And when you say COVID, you know, I, th- I think it's not only the the pandemic of a physical virus; it's the pandemic of a cultural virus mm-hmm. that proliferated yeah. the kind of polarization that we experienced the inability to have good conversations that were nuanced and charitable. I, I think within the evangelical community, um, there were often ways in which we forgot the admonition of James chapter one that would call us to be quick to listen, you know, slow to speak, slow to anger because the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. You know, to me, that time period, whether it was the, the virus um, or the racial uh, unrest that was occurring um whether it was the political polarization or debates that you know churches were having, do we take this PPP loan or not? And what's the relationship between the church and the government? And on and on and on and on. To me, it, it demonstrated a few different weaknesses, as well as a realization of a more fundamental human need. And the weaknesses are, I think evangelicals are really, really good with their personal theology, sense of personal conversion. Uh, a sense of the personal implications uh, of biblical faith, not as strong on what is our public theology. What is the nature of faith in society in general, particularly in a pluralistic society? What is the nat- nature of the relationship between the church and government, between uh, our non-Christian neighbors uh, and the local community of followers of Jesus? Not Not just in the terms of how do we present Jesus to our individual neighbors, but how are communities structured institutionally, individually, all of that? Um, I think the tensions that were revealed revealed a weakness in our public theology, which led to a weakness in our public discipleship. We know what to do when a marriage is in crisis. We have books, we have seminars. Uh, We have a 10-week course. We have mentoring programs in our churches. We we know what to do with a marriage in crisis. What do you do with political polarization? What retreat do you send them to? What 10-week course do you have? What mentoring program do we have? I think our lack of those things demonstrates that we don't have a sense of public theology and discipleship that's 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 a weakness. you know, the racial justice issues that arose um, revealed some deep differences within the evangelical community about how we even conceive uh, of these issues. And some of those differences revealed differences of racial and ethnic background, um, not just theology. I, I think the most fundamental thing that the pandemic revealed was God created us uh, to be people in community. And when we are not able to physically be with one another, despite the glories of uh, online church and the ability that we have to reach people that might not otherwise come to church, despite all the blessings of technology, um, there is something compelling about the way that God designed us to be able to see each other, touch each other, laugh with each other. As Scripture would say, share the holy kiss, uh, the right hand of fellowship, to break bread with one another, uh, to have meals with one another, and the lack of that during the pandemic, I think created a context in which the ways that God designed us designed us to handle adversity were not available to us.
1: Yeah, such a mm. good perspective. Very Absolutely, helpful. we are, and it's an embodied faith. Yeah. and we need each other. Yeah. So, Walter, from your seat of leadership.
0: What would you say are the greatest challenges facing the evangelical church in the U.S. today?
2: Yeah, I touched upon a couple of those things. Um, you know, the weakness in our public theology, developing a more robust understanding, not simply of the social application of the gospel. In other words, when you hear a good sermon, for instance, uh, your, your heart wells up with gratitude. And so you volunteer at the soup kitchen because it's an expression of gratitude for what Jesus did for you and and that's great but I I want to push a little farther and say you know is the social application of the gospel merely a function of our gratitude when you look at the Old Testament and the way that the laws of Deuteronomy are set up they're not just laws that deal with our personal relationship with God make sure that you don't make idols but they're laws that govern what we did with trees, what we did with our animals, how we cared for uh, our um, ox to make sure that it didn't gore unintentionally or intentionally our neighbors and all sorts of laws that governed the ordering of society. So, there was kind of a covenant implication, not just uh, on the personal level, but how society should be ordered. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, that was not simply so that they could live in the promised land in a well-ordered society. You know, Moses. Represents the word of the Lord, in which he says these laws were given so that the nations would say, See what a great God that they must have, that that God would give them such righteous laws. So, one of the things I think we need to have is this sense of not just simply the social application uh, of a gospel that would arise from uh, gratitude, but the social implication of the good news of Jesus. It's actually baked into the gospel. That yep. doesn't pit personal salvation and coming to Jesus in a parking lot uh, after watching Star Wars, doesn't pit that against the social dimensions of how society uh, is to be ordered that God would be glorified. The second thing is, um, I think, the racial justice issues. We as a nation, we have consistently not only dropped the ball, mm. but have so, I think, dis honored God. I mean, there are, of course, brilliant, bright spots uh, of justice within our uh, history. But the evangelical church, um, I think, has an opportunity to get it right. So I'm going to pick pick on the NAE because I'm the president of NAE. I'm not going to pick <laughs> on any particular denomination or stream of of the church. In the 30s and 40s, the leaders of the NAE were really on the vanguard of denouncing racism in America. In fact, Achengay. The uh, first president of the NAE, preached a sermon where he called racism the greatest sin in America in the 30s. Well, in the 1950s, wow. uh, in 1956, the NAE passed a resolution that said evangelicals should be leading in the area of human rights, which at that time was a way of talking about civil rights. And so, it was ripe for the moment where Jesus' followers would have been the leaders in this. And then in the 1960s, evangelicals, for the most part, didn't show up in the civil rights movement. And I think we've been paying the consequences of that ever since. Wow. Um, I think we have an opportunity and a mandate to have a gospel-oriented approach, a good news-oriented approach, a biblical-oriented approach uh, to this issue because it's essential for the church in its multi-ethnic beauty uh, Mm -hmm. to get this right. And for us in America, the American church in particular, uh, I think we have a real call and responsibility to become leaders in this.
1: Group. Yeah, those challenges are also opportunities for sure to seize those opportunities uh, to, you know, really declare and demonstrate the kingdom among us. Um, what would you say are some maybe other opportunities that evangelicals need to see with really an opportunistic lens? You know, this is where we can shine the gospel.
2: Yeah. The, this notion of racial justice, I think is deeply connected to the multi-ethnic and pluralistic opportunity that we have missional context. Mm -hmm. So I'll use the example of where I live. I live in Charlottesville, moved here in 2017. And, um, as I was doing some demographic analysis of Charlottesville in 1980, 80% of Charlottesville was white. 18% was black 2% everything else Mm -hmm. in, uh, 2040, it is projected to be about 40% white, 29% Hispanic, 14% Asian American, 13% black, and then a smattering of everything else. That is a massive demographic shift in a short amount of time. My son, who graduated from um, high school here uh, a couple of years ago, in his graduating class, there were more Mohammeds than there were Michaels. Wow. Wow. I look at this as the single greatest missional opportunity that the church has had right on its doorstep ever, Amen. ever. Yeah. What an incredible opportunity. It so is. the call to get this whole notion of racial justice, multi-ethnic ministry is not just a, a social you know, application of gratitude. And it's not even kind of a progressive agenda of, it's a missional opportunity to proclaim Jesus and reach the nations who have now come to our doorstep. It it is tremendous. And I think we have a second opportunity. Rather than bemoaning uh, the fact that uh, as our society is increasing in its secularism, I think we have an opportunity to join the global church. I mentioned those brothers and sisters in in, uh, Jakarta, Indonesia. I think we have an opportunity to join the global church and learning how to lead and influence from the margins and not mm. the middle. Yeah. Most of our brothers and sisters uh, throughout time and in many places uh, in the world have learned what it means to be Jesus followers from the margins of society. And we see even in the New Testament, that's led to the most explosive growth, both in the early church and in the present church. I think we have an opportunity to see the church in America purified as we learn what it means to live on the margins of an increasingly pluralistic and secularized society, um, what it looks like to be followers of Jesus from the margins and not the middle, and to recover a deeper sense of faith and engagement. Love that.
0: So, Walter, uh, NAE has a political involvement in some ways. What do you see as the appropriate involvement of U.S. evangelicals in the political arena? And is there a place where we cross a line into inappropriate involvement?
2: Yeah. Well, you've, you you are asking a question that is certainly on the minds, uh, and it's deeply debated among many uh, Americans, the, the place of faith in the public square. And I carefully phrase it in that way, rather than politics, because I want to dethrone politics. Politics is not all there is to faith in the public square. It's -hmm. engagement in public schools. It's engagement in community life. It's engagement in your local clubs. It's engagement in all sorts of ways that lead uh, to the public expressions of faith. And so having said that, um, I think we need to reinvigorate a sense of our civic engagement more broadly, which includes politics. Now, at the NAE, we certainly have an advocacy element uh, to what we do. Uh, But I want to differentiate advocacy with policy from politics. So the NAE, we do not endorse candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, We do not denounce candidates. We are not engaged in political rallies in this way. So we're not political in that sense. But we are deeply engaged with policy. Uh, Because I use kind of the the five Ps in in my mind as I think about this. Uh, We are absolutely universally committed to the person of Jesus. That is something that we should have as evangelicals complete unanimity on, the lordship of Jesus in all domains of life. We should also have unanimity on the fact that there are theological and biblical principles, moral principles that would govern our lives. But we recognize that these moral principles, you know, we different traditions are stronger or weaker uh, in the ways in which one or other principle would be drawn out. And that's where we have the humility to learn from each other. The third P is policy. And this is where we need to have increasing charity, recognizing the diversity of the application. Just like coming out of churches, people apply the sermon in different ways. Coming out of our consensus unity around the lordship of the person of Jesus Uh, coming around our humble learning from each other about the principles, the theological moral principles of scripture. We need to have good conversations of what would be policy applications of these moral principles in the way that we conduct our lives uh, as a country. After those policies, of course, they get expressed in how you vote politically. And there, I would say, is even more latitude. Uh, and grace that we need to show each other. Um, and increasing recognition that we, we're we not always certain what the right thing to do politically is, um, because it's a mixed bag uh, full of compromises in a complex society. The thing that the final P, this partisanship, this kind of Nasty demonization of the other and caricaturization of the other person's position—that's a part that I think Christians, you know, getting back to the James chapter one approach, or or, or the approach that we we should be praying for those uh, in authority, or the way Jesus would tell us that we should pray for those who persecute us, love our enemies. I, I think that kind of partisanship really doesn't have a place uh, within uh followers uh of jesus both in our hearts much less in in our mouths
1: great perspective that is and it's always like a good pastor to alliterate all those so thank you for that. <laughs> 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 I,
2: I am an evangelical <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like
1: the extra side of the quadrilateral is alliteration should be in there somewhere <laughs> anyhow oh my goodness You've shared so many good insights. Uh, Sometimes we refer to them as brilliant bombs on our podcast. You know, just so many good things for us to think about. But in the midst of all that, there are a lot of tired, weary, even uh, discouraged pastors. Could you speak a word of encouragement to those pastors that might uh, help them to lift their eyes to their Savior and and to harvest fields he's called us to?
2: Yeah, there are a few things I would say. One is that Jesus absolutely loves you. I think uh, we can never graduate from that simple truth, mm. um, the profundity of that. And that includes loving you in the midst of your um, failures, in the midst of your ignorance and knowing what the right thing to do is, in the midst of your exhaustion and wondering, was it all worth it? In the end, to know that Jesus loves you is so foundational, so simple. Uh, we feel like we can graduate past that to a more sophisticated knowledge of grace and its role in our life, but really it does come back to the fact that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. The second thing I would say, and this is what I, again, I come back to that experience in Jakarta and seeing these nations, brothers and sisters from all over the world represented, whose stories I, for the most part, didn't know. We just intersected in a point of time and who right now, I don't know the persecution they're experiencing, the life that they're leading, the questions that they're asking. But one day I know that we are all going to be around the great wedding table of the Lamb of God Mm -hmm. from every sector of society, every country of this globe, and over time, and we're all going to be sharing stories for all of eternity of how God met us in our darkest times and how what looked to us as the end of the road was just a twist in the road a mm-hmm. turn in the road. Yeah. And we will never get bored in sharing those stories for all of eternity to That's the right. glory of God. Mm-hmm. And you You are going to be there one day.
0: Amen. Indeed. I really appreciate all you've shared with us today, Walter. We respect your voice and, and so grateful that your voice is speaking for evangelicals across America. Christian Missionary Alliance is so pleased to be a part of the National Association of Evangelicals and under your leadership. So thanks so much for joining us today and sharing some great insights with us on Equipping You podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
2: Terry Alan, what a joy it has been to be with you.
0: Well,
1: Alan, that was a phenomenal oh. conversation. Yep, I have a lot to think about in the uh, as I process this on my drive back to Pennsylvania after we're done recording. Yeah, I think what we got were not simplistic answers were at not. all,
0: but deeply thought out and, and yes, profound mm-hmm. answers that nuanced. Yeah, we need to chew on and yep. and, and, and and really think through and. And seek to apply, uh, especially appreciate the emphasis on, uh, you know, multicultural opportunities, the nations coming to us, the whole issue of of being leaders mm-hmm. in racial reconciliation. And I think those mm-hmm. are vitally important uh, challenges
1: and opportunities yeah. for the evangelical church in the U.S. Yeah, and I appreciate his challenge to embrace the term evangelical. Uh, he made a good point. We tend to have a kind of a hmm, a centric opinion of how things are going, and forget that it's not just a national word; it's an international word. And uh, our brothers and sisters need us to embrace it and to rejuvenate it, as he said, and recover it. It's 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 the heart of the gospel. It is it's the, heart the good of the gospel. news. Yep, let's embrace it and live it. So uh, next time on episode two, we'll have Rebecca McLaughlin with us. Alan, give us a little snippet of who Rebecca is. Yeah, I'm super excited to have her as a guest. She wrote the 2020 Christianity Today Book of the Year called Confronting Christianity, uh, 12 Hard Questions Christianity Must Address. Uh, She's thoughtful, uh, deals with apologetics, but not in a... hmm, disassociating way, but in an inviting and sympathetic way. So it's going to be a great conversation. I'm certainly looking forward to the opportunity. So Equipping You podcast listeners, thanks for joining us uh, for episode one
0: of season nine. Looking forward to seeing you for episode two of season nine. Until then, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.